Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, October 12, 2010. Less than two weeks away from my debate with Doug Paget on the uh, whether or not hell exists and if salvation's necessary to avoid it. That's going to be interesting. Oh, you know. Today's program. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Unfortunately, we have major Christian leaders who've, well, <laughs> left the reservation and they're off in bizarro world making uh, making up their own Christianities. Because, you know, here's the deal. I mean, if you think that you have the right to rethink Christianity, to rethink Christ, to rethink it all, uh, then, um, <clears throat> uh, well, then uh, what you're left with is, well, a Christianity of your own making. And uh, Christianity, it, listen, Christianity is not a do-it-yourself, uh, uh, you know, uh, arts and crafts kit. Yeah, you, listen, you don't go down to the local arts and crafts store. What, what are those called? Michaels? Yeah, Michaels. Yeah, you don't want to go. You're not going to go down to Michaels and say, you know, I, I'd like to see your Christianity aisle. And, you know, and then the woman take you down and, and say, oh, here's all of our different Christianities. We have some really, really nice Christianities for you. We've got a Christianity over here. Oh, this is a great Christianity. See, this Christianity right here, well, this one, um, there's no sin. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Yeah, there's no um, there's no hell. Oh, wow, what a great Christianity that is. And uh, this one over here, now this one does have Jesus rising from the dead, but you can swap that out with uh, with the uh, the Jesus from this other kid over here. Yeah, see the Jesus the kid the Jesus uh, the Christianity kid over here, that Jesus, he didn't really rise from the dead bodily. He just rose again to show you that your dreams can can rise from the dead too. <gasps> oh, can I really? Oh, sure, no problem. Let me rip open the packaging here. And yeah, we'll just take the Jesus out of this Christianity and you can take that the Jesus out of that Christianity packet. And so what you can do is you just kind of cobble your own Christianity together. You know, I remember a few years ago, uh, my youngest daughter uh, for her birthday received a, a gift from a friend of hers. And it was a gift certificate to a company called Build-A-Bear. Now, listen, I, I'm a guy. I don't normally 
pay attention to things like this. Um, but it was rather interesting to see how this one played out. And uh, the idea was is that she took her gift certificate and she went to the Build-A-Bear store in the mall. And uh, when she got there, well, the, the thing that uh, she got to do was, you know, to pick out the skin, the type, and some of the features of this bear. And then, and it, it was a bill, a bear custom made to my daughter's specifications and internal felt needs regarding what a, what, what what reflects uh, the the perfect picture of uh, of um, teddy bearness. So yeah, see, the problem is, is that. Today, for whatever reason, people who are Christians and Christian leaders are teaching other Christians that, listen, listen, Christianity is like a Build-A-Bear thing. You know, you go to the Build-A-God so it's a build a God shop. Yeah, see, what kind of God are you looking for? You know, you, you want one that affirms you in your homosexuality? Okay, we've got a God that does that. You, you want a God that, uh, uh, that you know, kind of turns a blind eye when, uh, when, you know, when you're lying to your boss or cutting corners and, and treating your customer schlocky and, and, and putting inferior parts into the uh, things that your company is uh, building and putting for sale on the market. No problem. We got a god that'll do that. And uh, you you want so you want a god that basic oh you want a god that will give you a personal vision that will then tell you that he wants you to uh, leave your wife and uh, and for you to marry your secretary. Oh, we got a god that'll do that too. Yeah, no problem. We, we yeah, you, you, any kind of any god, whatever god you're looking for, we got we got that. And and at the end of it, uh, here's here's the fun part: you get to name your god. And what I think is interesting is is that at many people, after going to going to the build a god shop, um, at the end of it, you know, when you get to give the name to your cuddly god that you've created for yourself, that you know, you cobble together in this you know little store here. Um, that at the end of it, you know, the, so what are you going to name yours? Because they, that was the question that you know, came up to my daughter after building this bear. I mean, she put a little heart in it, you know, and this stuffed it, and, and they put it all together for her. And at the very end, what are you going to name your bear? And so when you go to the Build-A-God shop, that that's the question that comes up. Oh, your God is so cute. Oh, he does. He looks like he wouldn't harm a fly. <laughs> what are you going to name your God? Okay, well, okay, I'm going to name my God. Are you ready for this? Okay, I'm ready. I'm going to name my God Jesus. Oh, that's such a great name. You know, there's a lot of people who name their gods Jesus. That is so... Okay, let's put this down. Uh, the the God that uh, that uh, Janie created here at the Build a God Shop, she's named him Jesus. Oh, it's he's so cute. Oh, I just want to pinch his cheeks. Oh, what a great God that is. Oh, wow. <clears throat> Isn't that what people are doing nowadays? I mean, forget what the Bible says. <laughs> we don't like that one because that God comes already preassembled. <laughs> yeah, the God of the Bible, he's he well um <clears throat> he's the creator and he not only is he preassembled, well he's he doesn't change. He, according to scripture, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And he's got some really really attributes about him that are just not politically correct and just seem kind of unfeasible and unlikable in today's spiritual atmosphere and climate and marketplace. And so, you know, we don't need the God of the Bible. You know, he he's archaic. He's 
Just a failed prototype. Yeah. See, we've got we've got the more educated and spiritual but not religious deities that we can all turn to now that will affirm us in our favorite sins. And uh yeah, so we don't need we no no that 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 preassembled, prefabricated God of the Bible, yeah, no, he's got features that we don't want, and so we just want to get rid of him. Yeah, isn't that what's happening in the church church? Yeah. In the church. Yeah, people are just concocting their own build-a-god. And, oh, look at the God that I've created. I've named him Jesus, and you can worship him. You can you can sing praise songs to this Jesus, and uh, and here's great things about this Jesus. And uh, uh, the Bible, uh, well, doesn't make much of an appearance in talking about and worshiping and praising that particular Jesus because really that Jesus is more or less a reflection of, uh, well, the God that the current culture deems acceptable. Right. I mean, isn't that what it is? And unfortunately, there's way too many pastors in the Christian church who are all too willing to oblige the culture and give them the deity that they are looking for. Unfortunately, as uh, the church continues to do that, the culture continues to slip farther and farther and farther and farther into and go deeper and deeper and deeper and inventing newer and newer ways of sinning. And as a result of it, so the God that they're looking for is the God that will affirm them in uh, in an ever-increasing um, muckiness of uh, sinful um, behavior. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> See, right now, I mean, we, we want the God that affirms gay marriage. You know, what's it going to be 10 years from now? I mean... Uh, I, I've heard that there's these things called polyamorous uh, marriages, you know, several guys, several girls, all, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure that it's just a matter of time before, you know, the ELCA and uh, liberals in the Episcopal Church are going to, you know, talk about how God affirms them in their polyamorous marriages. And that we, the, the, only, the only important thing is love, you know, so... Yeah, trust me, it's it's getting worse by the day, and well, the reason why is because, for whatever reason, uh, Christian churches are putting up with tolerating, and uh, well, not just that. I mean, flat out, they're getting rid of the guys who are preaching that prefabricated God, the one that has all the hard edges that, that are not really politically correct and acceptable in today's culture, and uh, and uh, they, you know, um, they they're surrounding themselves with teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Yeah, so if you're uh, tuning into this program because you would like me to, well, affirm you in your sin and, and to build a Jesus for you that, uh, that that doesn't have any of those thorny, stupid, silly things, you know, like rising from the dead, God creating the world in six days, you know, the God who punishes sin and, and, the, and the God who died a bloody ugh, uh, penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. Yuck, yo, yeah, if you, if you are tuning in because you want to, um, you know, you want me to, well, give you uh, a Jesus of your liking? <laughs> yeah, just uh, change the channel or turn the podcast off right now because this is going to be a hopeless endeavor. Because I'm going to tell you about the prefab God, the one you don't like, the one that you're at war with, the one you're you by nature are rebelling against. The yeah, the one who's going to judge you on the, the one that actually really exists. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about him because uh, it's not just that uh, God's going to judge you. There's good news on the, uh, on the God front uh, with the God that you don't like. Yeah, there's really good news from him. Are you ready? Here it is. 
all of those sins that you've committed, all of those infractions that you've done against God's law, great news. Christ died on the cross in your place, took your punishment for you on the cross and uh, is, um, well, offering you full and complete pardon. Yeah. All of your sins, wipe clean. Christ is taking care of the judgment part of it. Uh, you would, you don't have to face God's wrath, and uh, he's calling you to repent, therefore, of your sinfulness and rebellion against him, and to be forgiven, full and complete pardon. You don't have to go to hell. You uh, don't have to uh, pay the consequences of your sin. Christ has done it all for you. Repent and believe the good news. Isn't that great news? You're gone. Yeah, but it sounds so traditional, so like, ugh, first century. Yeah, I know. That's on purpose. All right. Um, we are um, going to dive into the program proper here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, yeah, a few things I want to do today. And uh, number one, uh, kind of news on the emergent front. Um, are you familiar with the book Unchristian? Uh, you familiar with the author by the name of Gabe Lyons? Well, Gabe Lyons has a new book out. And uh, and uh, Christy, the Christian Post has done an interview with Gabe Lyons on the name of the um, the uh, the name of the book is the Next Christians. Mm, yeah, the good news about the end of Christian America. Well, there's a provocative title, and uh, so I'm going to read this today. Um, we got uh, science and evolutionary news here. Um, the uh, USA Today Faith and Reason blog is uh, talking about a guy by the name of Jerry uh, 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 Coyne. Uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that way. C-O-Y-N-E. I'm going to just pronounce it Coyne. And uh, he's, a, he's a scientist, and he's, he's written a book called Why Evolution is True. And, uh, you know, he pulls no punches. And he basically says that uh, science and religion are not compatible. And uh, kind of an in-your-face. Apparently, he's... Uh, He's somebody who's joined the ranks of the new atheists. And Al Muller has um, written a blog, uh, a new uh, op-ed piece called Science and Religion Aren't Friends? Question mark. And uh, so we're going to be reading uh, Dr. Muller's response to that. And uh, then we've got Third Eagle of the Apocalypse uh, news. Uh, yeah, brand new video just came out from the uh, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. And um, the the name of the video is Red Alert World War Three Eminent. And so, you know, I, I have to pass this information on to you. I mean with um with the tribulation he you know, he in this um video that, that came out on the tenth of October, ten ten ten, um the third eagle of the apocalypse is uh, basically uh, making the claim that this is William Tapley, by the way, uh that um this week the tribulation starts. So you know, you, you might want to get your calendars out. Um, the the tribulation starts, I think, in like two days, or is it? I think it starts tomorrow. Yeah, you might want to put down in your in your calendar. Tribulation begins tomorrow, and by the way, World War Three is imminent. So, uh, we've got to get the latest uh, prophetic news from uh, William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. And then our sermon review today comes to us via the Revolution Church in New York City. That's the uh, Church of um, J. Baker. Yeah, J. Baker. Uh, and um, uh, the sermon is preached by uh, Peter Rollins yeah, of the Emergent Church Movement. And um, the idea behind the sermon is, is that uh, why the new atheists don't go far enough. That's the name of the sermon. Why the new atheists don't go far enough by Peter Rollins preaching at Revolution 
Church in uh, New York City. And uh, so we got lots of ground that we need to cover today. You need to make yourself comfortable, kick up your feet, relax, relax. It's going to be an interesting program if you want to enjoy an adult beverage. We don't have a problem with that. It's a gift from God, and it's not to be abused. Yeah, drunkenness, es no bueno. You, 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 don't, you don't want to take it to that level because then you, it crosses the line from gift to sin. That's not a good thing. And, uh, of course, fuzzy bunny slippers if your neck of the woods is cooling off. Uh, you know, I was last year it, in it, it, last year at this time of the year in Indiana. I, I mean, it was cold. And uh, we have had a, a, from kind of like the, the end of the summer and beginning of fall has been warm and dry here in Indiana. It reminds me of Southern California weather. We've had it for quite a while. And the question, of course, on everyone's mind is when's it going to rain? I mean, it's it's really dry out there. You know, I'm thinking we're going to get Santa Ana winds and, you know, we're going to have one of those events like they had in, uh, you know, they have in California every year when the Santa Ana wind get blown, you know, you know, all of Southern California catches on fire. That's what happens. I don't, I don't know what it is about Southern California, but uh, this time of year you get those Santa Ana winds and, um, and, and as soon as the winds blow, it's just, it's, uh, California, Southern California just spontaneously combusts. It goes, and, you know, and then there's fires everywhere. I just, you know, I remember a few years ago, I mean, we had, you know, when I was living in San Clemente, there was a fire down at Pendleton that raced up towards San Clemente and we were wondering, what, are we in trouble here? <laughs> How did I get onto that topic? Anyway, yeah, yes, I, I distract myself. All right. It's uh, time to jump into the program proper. Let's, let's go. From the USA Today Faith and Reason blog, Scientist says faith in God is superstition like leprechauns. Yeah, it even shows a a picture of people at a St. Patrick's Day um, celebration wearing, you know, green and with beards, you know, looking leprechaunish, if you would. Uh, and who wrote this? Is this the lady who does this blog? I, it doesn't, I don't have a byline on this one. Anyway, uh, she says, um, I know that it has to be her. I just don't see her name on here. Oh, here it is. Uh, Kathy Lynn Grossman. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't in the normal place. You know, you, you, you ever have that happen to you? You know, sometimes my wife will say, Chris, can you go down to the kitchen and grab such and such? And it's like, I'll go down to the kitchen and I just, and I'll realize, wait a second, there's like 900 cabinets in here. Um, which cabinet is it in? It's the one on the left-hand side. It's like, no, <laughs> that doesn't help me. <laughs> Can you number these things? It's in cabinet number three, bin number two. That would help. Yeah, her name was out. This is by Kathy. <laughs> I'm getting old, creeping, decrepit. Yeah, yeah. Her name was not in the normal place. I'm looking for it because normally the byline's like with the story. It's off to the right. Anyway. If you go to the USA Today Faith and Reason blog, you'll see what I'm talking about. Anyway, Kathy Lynn Grossman, um, uh, she writes, Move over, Richard Dawkins. Yet another scientist is weighing in on science versus religion and wheeling out his most outrageous language for his point. This time, unlike the common spiritual ground of awe at creation, proposed in a forum essay last month by Chris Mooney, host of the podcast Point of Inquiry, University of Chicago Ecology and Evolution Professor Jerry Coyne sees no reconciliation and he gives no quarter. Yeah, that's right. Coyne, whose latest book, Why Evolution is True, takes the Monday USA Today op-ed form spot to blast faith as an enemy of truth, an oppressive social force and the impetus of all evil rather than evil's nemesis. 
Okay, so religion is what's at the heart of all evil. That's why the atheistic um, um, governmental political theories and economic theories like, you know, atheistic socialism, atheistic communism, that's why, you know, they – when they were implemented, that they, they ushered in nothing but peace and prosperity for all of their citizens. I mean, it's not like Stalin killed 10 million people or anything. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, he, yeah, he writes, quote, science is no more compatible with religion than any other superstitions such as leprechauns. We don't talk about reconciling science with leprechauns. That's true, they don't. And he says, we worry about religion simply because it's the most venerable superstition and the most politically and financially powerful. Why does this matter? Because pretending that faith and science are equally valid ways of finding the truth not only weakens our concept of truth, it also gives religion an undeserved authority that does the world no good. It is faith's certainty that it has a grasp on truth combined with its inability to actually find it that produces such things as the oppression of women and gays, opposition to stem cell research and euthanasia, attacks on science, denial of contraception for birth control and AIDS prevention, sexually, sexual repression, and of course, all those wars. Suicide bombings and religious persecutions. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of throws uh, all religions into the same bin, and you know, well, they're all apparently, you know, if you're a Christian, well, <laughs> you're just the same as a suicide bomber. <sighs> yeah, let's. Uh, <clears throat> Albert Muller. Love this guy, by the way. I have I ever mentioned the fact that I really have deep respect for Al Mohler? He he's written about this particular thing. Uh, he wrote about this yesterday. Um, he he. The name of his uh, headline at his blog is "Science and Religion Aren't Friends." Are science and Christianity friends? The answer to that is an emphatic yes. And for any true science, will be perfectly compatible with the truths we know of by God's revelation. But this science is not naturalistic, while modern science usually is. Uh, Dr. Muller writes, he says, Jerry Coyne is is not one to pull punches, apparently not. A professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Chicago, Coyne is an ardent defender of evolution and an equally ardent opponent of any friendship between science and religion. In today's edition of USA Today, Coyne once again makes that point most emphatically. In Science and Religion Aren't Friends, Coyne argues that the worldviews of science and religion are irreconcilable. While he frames his argument in terms of religion in general, he specify he's he's his specific reference to Christianity, science and faith he insists are based on irreconcilable ways of understanding the universe. The debate between Christianity and modern science is well not new, of of course, but Coyne and his fellow evolutionists are growing impatient at the fact that a majority of Americans still reject the theory of evolution. Over 150 years after Darwin and almost 90 years after the Scopes Monkey Trial, Americans still reject the theory of evolution as an explanation for the universe and the life therein. Coyne expresses exasperation in light of the fact that only the nation of Turkey exceeds America in popular denial of evolution. <laughs> yeah, we're just like Turkey. <sighs> Over the last 15 decades or so, uh, three major positions have emerged in terms of the relationship between evolutionary science and the Christian faith. The first position 
is an open embrace of evolutionary theory. This is the path chosen by theological liberals who abdicate the biblical doctrine of creation and simply begin with the affirmation of evolution as a brute fact. In some cases, this is done with a full and honest acknowledgement of the theological and doctrinal modifications that are then made necessary. In other cases, there's an honest acknowledgement. Uh, the position at, at the other end of the spectrum is outright denial of evolutionary theory. This is the path chosen by conservative evangelicals who acknowledge the Bible as the infallible and inerrant word of God and then recognize the incompatibility of the biblical revelation and the doctrine of evolution. That's right. Now, now I, I would argue it slightly differently, but it's you know it, it, you end up at the same position. This idea that uh, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, and that He proved His claim by raising Himself from the dead. And while Jesus actually believed in the six day creation, believed Adam and Eve were real people, and all that kind of stuff, affirmed the uh, that the Genesis story is the well the Word of God. And so it's kind of silly to go against Jesus on this. Yeah, so I'm just going with him. He's got the best credentials out there. I mean, in the religious community, Jesus' credentials actually are way better than uh, the Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else. I mean, he's, you know, he claimed to be God, proved it by raising himself from the dead th- on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Yeah, tough to beat that. But I come basically to the con- in same conclusion. Well, that being the case, I mean, I would be stupid to have a position, hold a position about the Bible that's different than Jesus is since he kind of trumps everybody. And he, well, he believed the Bible was infallible and inerrant and actually affirmed that, that, well, you know, all that kind of stuff. Therefore, I reject evolution. You know, Jesus rejects it. I reject it. And you know what? I bet you anything. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a reason why it's 150 years after uh, the evolutionary theory first burst onto the scene, while it, why it still seems to, well, not be convincing. How many transitional species have we found? None. Oh, yeah. How many? I mean, I mean, didn't Darwin say that? Well, there would be a lot of them, and that you know the fossil records would bear it out. And yeah, the whole idea of uh, you know irreducible, irreducible complex structures, yeah, makes it impossible too. Yeah, just I mean, these are just some minor things. Plus, you know, you got that over at the Discovery Institute. You got that growing list. I think what they're up to four or five hundred scientists now, and some of them aren't. Yeah, you know, a lot of them aren't even Christians who reject evolution. Yeah. Anyway, um, let me continue with um, uh, uh, Dr. Mueller's piece. As Jerry Quain remarks in his book, "Why Evolution Is True," while many religious people have found a way to accommodate evolution with their spiritual beliefs, so no such reconciliation is. Possible if one adheres to the literal truth of a special creation. Mm-hmm. Believers committed to a biblical worldview and the trustworthiness of the Bible figured this out a long time ago. Right, yeah. Is there a middle position? Well, many clearly hope so, and some Christians have attempted some accommodation between evolution and the Christian faith. Theistic evolution is a classic example of such a mediating position. This position accepts the central arguments of evolution and modifies the Christian faith so that it is not in conflict with those central arguments. In my view, any Christian form of theistic evolution is a contradiction in terms, and at the end of the day, the theological modifications required by the acceptance of evolution are vast 
and utterly disastrous for biblical Christianity. The theistic evolutionists think otherwise, of course, and that is one of the great debates of our day. Oddly enough, it is those who hold to the uh, to the classically opposed positions who agree that theistic evolution is both unsatisfactory and untenable. Nevertheless, Many try to argue for the accommodation of evolution in Christianity. In his USA Today article, Professor Coyne sets his aim at destroying any attempt to argue for the compatibility of Christianity and evolution. To those who argue that science and religion are compatible, compatible friends, Coyne says, as a scientist and former believer, I see this as bunk. Science and faith are fundamentally incompatible and for precisely the same reason that irrationality and rationality are incompatible. They are different forms of inquiry with only one science equipped to find real truth. And while they may have a dialogue, it's not a constructive one. Science helps religion only by disproving its claims, while religion has nothing to add to science. Well, in that statement, Coyne offers a perfect example of naturalistic scientific thinking. His worldview is entirely naturalistic and materialistic. Everything that exists within a naturalistic box and can be known only on naturalistic terms. Any theistic faith is irrational in his reckoning, and only naturalistic science is rational. Science is, quote, equipped to find real truth, while religion is based on no real knowledge at all. Coyne acknowledges this, the existence of scientists like Francis Collins of the National Institutes of Health, who are both Christians and evolutionists, but he attributes this position to contradictory thinking and a lapse in judgment. He argues that the existence of religious scientists or religious people who accept science doesn't prove that the two areas are compatible. It shows only that people can hold two conflicting notions in their head at the same time. But Coyne does not believe that there are, are very many religious scientists anyways. He cites study by uh, the study by Elaine Howard Eklund that reports the fact that fully 64% of American scientists are atheists or agnostics. Coyne is not a disappointed, uh, dispassionate scientist. His attack upon religious belief is direct and unsparing. Why does he offer such ho- a hostile approach to theistic belief? He writes, quote, because pretending that faith and science are equally valid ways of finding truth not only weakens our concept of truth, it also gives religion an undeserved authority that does the world no good. Mm-hmm. And uh, Professor Coyne offers us a clear and forceful defense of his naturalism as a worldview, and he is honest enough to show us where it leads. He also dismisses the attempt to forge a middle position between evolution and theism. Both of these intellectual moves should be noted and remembered are sincere are science and christianity friends well the answer is that is an emphatic yes for any true science will will be perfectly compatible with the truths we know by god's revelation but this science is not naturalistic while modern science usually is too many evangelicals try to find middle ground only to end up arguing for positions that combine theological surrender with science naivete. As as Jerry Coyne makes very clear, there really is no middle ground. That's right. There's no, uh, brilliantly argued Dr. Moeller, and I would only add to this, is that, you know, to kind of put the, uh, uh, the emphasis on what you were staying staying here is is that th- th- it's not science that he's arguing is incompatible because he's he's basically defining science in such a way that science can only be done if you have a presupposition for naturalistic materialism. But real science can be done even if you hold to theistic creationism. 
Yeah, he, his presupposition is is that uh, the the only thing the the only things that are are explainable are naturalistic means. <sighs> anyway, yeah, so we ha- we don't have anything to fear from real science. No, not at all. And naturalistic materialism, well, that's a competing religion. All right, we're up on our first break, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, taking a look at uh, Gabe Lyons's interview in uh, the Christian Post for his brand new book, The End of Christian America. Yeah, the next Christians, good news about the end of Christian America, Gabe Lyons, uh, an emergent uh, type and not somebody I would recommend, but you'll see why here in a second. And then, we, we uh, again, we've got a red alert from the third eagle of the apocalypse. Yeah, a total red alert, World War III imminent. The tribulation, I think, starts tomorrow. So, you, you know, you, you don't want to miss what's coming up next. So... Uh, <laughs> If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! 
Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning. Christianity and naturalistic rationalism are not compatible. Yeah, it, it tries to disguise itself as science, but that's just what it is. 
Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. This is a partnership between me and you and, and the other listeners who are listening around the world. And so the way you partner with us and, and join in the work that we're doing is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. That's all one word kind of squished together, fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons are right there in the middle of the page. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you sign up to join our crew, what you're signing up to do is automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And the more people that uh, join our crew, it levels out our monthly giving so that we can better pay, you know, budget things and and pay our bills even during some of the lean months. There are there are lean months, by the way. We've noticed that. Uh, having been around the track now two times, uh, two years, we're, you know, we're, we've been around for longer than two years now. Anyway, uh, of course, if you'd like to specify, you know, an individual amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 okay uh this next uh piece uh this is just by way of warning uh you, gabe lyons uh yeah he's he's one of these neo-emergent liberals you got you know if you got people who are listening if you know people who are reading his books and going oh yeah this is the best stuff ever you need to warn them and i'll point this out um Gabe Lyons uh, has a brand new book out entitled uh, "The Next Christians." Next ones. Apparently, there's a you know every generation has a different group of you know different type. No, there's Christians. There's there's only there is no next Christians. There's just Christians, and so these are very um, what I consider to be very dangerous distinctions. But uh, Michelle A. Vu uh, with the uh, Christian Post has interviewed. Gabe Lyons, and he writes, uh, she writes, uh, Michelle, uh, I'm sorry, a young evangelical leader, Gabe Lyons, believes that the death of Christian America is a good thing because it makes way for a new generation of believers, which he calls the next Christians. Yeah, it makes you wonder if the next Christians are really even Christians at all. Uh, the Christian Post met up with Lyons, co-founder of the Catalyst Conference and co-author of Unchristian, What a ne- New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters, at the recent Catalyst Conference in Atlanta to discuss his new book, The Next Christians, the, the good news about the end of Christian America. The book, released October 5th, takes an optimistic look at the next generation of American Christians that seeks to engage the world and to restore all parts of society as God intended when he created the universe. What is uh, the, you know, what you should be hearing when you hear that kind of that kind of language? This is coded language. OK, listen again. Engage the world and restore all parts of society as God intended when he created the universe. This is liberal post-millennialism. This is Hegelianism. This idea that uh, the job of a Christian is to help God, well, realize his dream for the world. And that is is that everything's getting better and better and better and better. And we get to participate with God in, well, bringing the kingdom of God here to earth. And the way we do that is, well, we eliminate poverty. uh, We get rid of capitalism, replace it with global socialism. Um, yeah, um, this is a problem. This is not, this is not, this is not biblical eschatology that we're dealing with here. And as a result of it, it affects the gospel. Okay. 
I've hung around enough emergence, been involved in enough emergent conversations that I recognize their code words. So when you hear somebody like Rob Bell, Gabe Lyons, uh, Doug Paget, or anybody else say things like, well, we need to engage the world and restore all parts of society as God intended when he created the universe, that's this uh, post-millennialism, bring the kingdom of God here on earth, uh, dominionist type of thinking. Anyway... So here's the uh, following excerpt from the interview. Why do you think the end of Christian America would not result in a spiritual vacuum like in Europe? What makes America different? Lions. <clears throat> I think the end of Christian America, as I'm describing it, is really an end of the last few decades of a sort of Christian dominance in the power and position of culture, mostly the political sector. Last few decades? Um, Gabe? Um, dude. Um. Are you familiar with uh, American history at all? Yeah. Um, Christians have had prominent positions in power and influence of those in power, um, uh, well, ever since the pilgrims landed at, at uh, Plymouth Rock. <sighs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, it, see, it, it, see what, what, what does this prove? I mean, in his way of thinking, in a very ahistorical kind of way, um, you know the the dominance that Christianity has had in in the culture and society is kind of a fluke thing that only just happened within the last few decades. That's just ignorance. I mean, that's that's not even American history. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, most uh, so when you look at this is Gabe uh, Lyons responding. Says, so, so when you look at the religious right, you see over the last thirty years how much that has dominated how Christians see the world. Okay, that has driven that has driven cultural perception. The reason why it America's Christianity is different than Europe's is because the church is alive in America. The church is not like in Europe, where the church is not a part of the fabric, a vibrant fabric of society. In America, it is much alive and part of society. Seventy-six percent identify themselves as Christians in our country. The reality is, there can be a resurgence in the faith to give them real meaning and hope which might not be found in a political morality-based message to the world about what Christians are, what they believe in, and how we should be involved in our culture. Now, notice he's kind of reduced Christianity and the religious right down to just pure morality-based. Now, listen, in the, in the religious right, there are legalists for sure, but uh, that's not the, those are not the only voices in the, quote, religious right. There are people in the religious right who understand... Uh, Law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And their prophetic message is one of repent and be forgiven, not just be better. Okay, so <clears throat> so here's what he says. Christians are now forced to get back into the fabric of life in every channel, not just the political channel, but in media... Um, uh, but in media, business, social sector, education, we are forced in a good way to just play out our faith there and not get caught up or swept away in visions of power. Uh, by the way, telling Americans, uh, hello, uh, abortion is wrong is not a vision of power. That's standing up for those who don't have a voice, the weakest among us. Uh, anyway, uh, where we can exert our view of the world and everybody else just needs to conform to it. I mean, seriously, does Gabe Lyons, just what I've read so far, does this guy sound like somebody who's biblical in his approach? I mean, he seems awful hostile to um, 
biblical Christianity and even the morals of the Bible. <clears throat> they, the, the lions, right? They, the next Christians, are just looking for how the church can be a church that relates to people in our world who, who are pretty skeptical of Christians now as a result of the backlash of the religious right. So the Christian Post asks, well, what do you mean by the term restoration? How does the idea of restoration shape the worldview of the next Christian? Lyons responds, he says, well, restoration is the idea of shalom, the idea of putting things back together that are broken to restore and to repair. The next Christians see the whole story throughout the scripture of creation, where in the beginning everything was good. The fall separated us from God, redemption coming through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, and it's calling us to be a partner with him in renewing and restoring all things. Um... Where in the scripture does it say that Jesus calls Christians to partner with him in his restoration and renewal of all things? Yeah, when you read the apostles and even Jesus, I mean, here's the idea. He gives the he gives Christians the task of going and making disciples and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Why? Well, because that repentance and forgiveness of sins is critical. The reason it's critical is because Christ isn't coming back to, well, let me put it this way. Christians are not participating with God to restore all things. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And on the last day, according to the Apostle Peter, uh, the stars fall from the sky. He destroys uh, heaven and earth, and he creates a new heaven and new earth all by himself without our help. Can you imagine that? Yeah, this sounds like the Rob Bell kind of stuff that we're hearing. So here's what he says. The next generation, the next Christians, they understand restoration as well connected to the gospel. They are motivated by the fact that Jesus restored their own soul and is constantly in the process of restoring them. That is driving them to go out into the world and to fix things, that which they come into contact with that are broken. And when you look at back at the first universities, hospitals, and the advancements in, in societies, Christians were doing it. They had this mentality of restoration for centuries. You know, come to think of it, no, I don't think that uh, creating hospitals was one of those things that had to do with post-millennialism and dominionism. No, I, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure Pastor Charlie will correct me if I'm wrong here, but I just don't see the creation of universities and hospitals and, yeah, the way I look, I mean, Harvard University was originally a Christian university designed to train pastors. Many of the you know Ivy League schools, when they were created, they weren't they weren't created to restore the world. They were created to educate Christians and to educate pastors. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. No. He. This is um kind of like postmodern historical revisionism going on here, rather than restoration. Anyway, so all right, so um, that that somebody should be able to get medical care when they are sick. We need to create something that the world can interact with that will help them get restored, and not just spiritually. Oh yeah, yeah. What what do we do for the dead people, Gabe? Um, how do we restore them? Yeah, yeah. Because here in Indiana, unlike Orange County in in uh, in Southern California, when I was in Orange County, I'm absolutely convinced there must be a law written in Orange County that people aren't allowed to die. Uh, because, I mean, finding a cemetery, whew, tough to do. Not so tough here in Indiana. I mean, a, a few blocks away from here, we got an old cemetery, I mean, with some old stones, with some Civil War guys buried there. And um, 
So I think you're allowed to die in the state of Indiana, which I'm very excited about because, you know, th- that if Jesus continues to tarry, well, eventually I'm going to. And I just I'm glad I have permission here in Indiana that that's OK. But, um, you know, here in Indiana, we have cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think cemeteries are part of the big restoration plan? Yeah, no, see, um, what what is Gabe focusing on? Temporal things. This is not the gospel. Now, what's the reason why Christians create universities and hospitals and, and participate in society and government and try to improve things? Okay? It's, it's because God, that's God's will. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so hospitals, universities, and participating in society and helping to improve bad conditions give us – those are perfect ways for us to do God's will. And that it's God's will that we love and serve our neighbor. Yeah, it's not connected to this idea of, well, God's restoring all things and it's all about shalom. And, you know, we've got to help create the kingdom of God here on earth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Gabe Lyons um, I'm telling you, this guy is drinking heavily of postmodern emergence uh, neo uh, neoliberalism. You you want to avoid this guy like the plague. Okay, moving along here. Um, yeah, it's time that we. Uh, <clears throat> That's right, folks. Time for an update from the uh, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, William Tapley. Yeah, uh, his latest video is entitled Red Alert. Red Alert. World War III imminent. And I think, you know, yeah, yeah I, I, in fact, I don't even do this justice. Here is William Tapley, third eagle of the apocalypse, to, get, uh, to give us the latest prophetic news. I mean, you don't want to miss this. I mean, th- we are doing this as a public service to our Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio listeners. Here's uh, William Tapley issuing his Red Alert. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. This will probably be my last video before the start of the seven years of tribulation. Oh, man, that... I mean, it's the end of an era. It makes you just want to, you know... I tell you, it's just sad how seasons change. So uh, here's William Tapley and letting us know that this is probably his last video before the tribulation begins. Which begins this coming week on October 13th. Gasp. Okay, write it down. You know, I know some of you are podcasting and, you know, it, you're listening to this and you, you, you're looking at your calendar going, whoa, it's like, oh, it's October 13th. What, what day did he say again? Hang on a second here. Hang on, hang on, hang on. October 13th. Yeah, October 13th. And you think it's October 13th? It's already happened. Oh, no, we're in the tribulation. And those of you who are behind, I, it's, oh, I don't even know. I mean, see, this is why you probably should try to catch up. I mean, because, I mean, it, the, the beginning of the tribulation is kind of a big deal. And, you know, so if, and, you know, here you are, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and, you know, you're listening to this, and it's like November already. And you're going, oh, how did I miss this? It makes me think maybe I should send out a tweet to warn everybody. You know, 
By the way, tribulation begins tomorrow. Um, you know, midnight. Uh, in this video, I want to sum up the most important warning which I have given in all of my other videos, and that is that World War III is imminent. This is my mission as the eagle which flies through the heavens in the book of Revelation, in chapter 8, verse 13. And later on in this program, I will give you a proof that I am a true prophet of Almighty God. Can't wait. How are you going to prove this? And I think you will be surprised at that proof which I give. Can't wait to see it. The seven years of tribulation begins on October 13th of this week because that is an anniversary date of Fatima. And the time in Fatima would be the same as in Jerusalem, I believe. And that means that the tribulation would begin for the United States six hours earlier. That is October 12th. The start of tribulation is, of course, World War III. Remember the sequence that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. Following the White Horse of Apostasy, which has already started, the White Horse began its run 500 years ago when Martin Luther posted his 95 Thesis, the White Horse of Apostasy, that symbolized the breakup of Christianity. Oh, okay, so it was Martin Luther who apostatized. <laughs> right. The second horse, the Red Horse of War, is the next woe. And that's the woe that is my job to warn about. Please don't listen to the false prophets who say that the seven years of tribulation will be instigated by some sort of covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. You will not find any such covenant mentioned in either the Olivet Discourse or in the Book of Revelation. It simply is not there. Now next I want to clear up some confusion about the exact date for the start of World War III. Yeah, because you're never confusing. Please note I have never given an exact date for the start of World War III. In my previous videos, I have given a general time frame of two years, that is 2009 to 10, and also I have given four possible dates. So some of my critics complain that I give four dates for World War III, and that cannot be biblical, because the Bible would give an actual date. Well, the Bible does not give a date for World War III. The Bible does give a date for Armageddon, and Jesus says that the tribulation will last seven years. But he also said that he is going to shorten the days of tribulation. And who does he shorten the tribulation for? He says, for the sake of the elect. Now, the elect are a particular group. Those are the protected Catholics who pray the rosary in the desert. <clears throat> okay, so uh, see if I'm following you straight here. Um, the whole date thing may be confusing because Jesus said that the... Um, Tribulation will last seven years, but he could shorten it for the sake of those Catholics who pray the rosary in the desert. Right. Remember, the raptured Protestants will be in heaven. The, they, what? what? <laughs> okay, so let me see if I have this straight. The raptured Protestants are going to be in heaven, but the Catholics who practice, who pray the rosary they're going to be in the desert so when the rapture happens it's it, it's only a partial rapture of the church so you can be left behind but don't worry it 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 it, it doesn't mean anything it just means that 
you have, oh boy. They do not have to worry about how long the tribulation lasts. By the way, this is proof that the entire church cannot be raptured because Jesus says he will shorten the days of tribulation. He would not need to shorten those days of tribulation if the entire church were raptured. But some, as I say, the protected Catholic. You know, wouldn't that just be like an argument against the rapture totally? I mean, they will be in the desert praying for the defeat of the Antichrist. So what does all this mean? It means that Jesus will shorten the seven years of tribulation. But does he shorten those days at the end of the tribulation? In other words, does he move up the date for Armageddon from 2017 to an earlier date? Or does he shorten the tribulation by postponing the start of World War III? I have never said that I know the truth about this. I don't know. I think it's possible that we can change the date. We can pray enough to postpone the start of World War III. Yeah, you better get praying, you know. It, it, the this the postponement of World War Three depends upon you. That's right. You know, we're just looking for a, a you know a few good prayers to post. You know, listen. Okay, listen. If World War Three, the coming you know imminent start of World War Three, you know, if it's going to mess up like your wedding plans or you know you know maybe you have a friend who's you know whose daughter's turning fifteen and you're from a Hispanic culture and you got the quinceanera thing coming up. And, you know, you're looking at your calendar going, yikes, you know, World War Three is real. That would mess up my daughter's quinceanera. Um, yeah, we better start praying so that we can kind of, that God will push that back. Because we wouldn't want, yeah, there's nothing worse than having like a wedding or a birthday party or maybe a 50th wedding anniversary completely messed up by, you know, the start of World War Three. You don't, yeah, you know, that just, it has a way of putting a damper on good celebrations. And so, or maybe you're planning on going on, you know, like that, that dream vacation, you know, you're going to get on one of those cruise ships, you know, the Royal Caribbean cruise ship, and you're going to float around the Caribbean for seven days, you know, sipping Mai Tais and floofy drinks and going scuba diving and playing golf, things like that. And you're, and you're looking, oh no, you know, like the, um, Ha! Huh, yeah, World War Three is going to start that week. That would mess up my whole vacation. So, um, get on your knees and you could pray and you push that back. In other words, if World War Three does not start in the window of opportunity, that is between October 13th and November 29th, we will know that Jesus is definitely shortening the days of the tribulation. Of course, Satan knows all this. He can read scripture. He knows that Armageddon starts in 2017. If I can figure it out, he can. He knows tribulation lasts for seven years. He knows he has a window of opportunity to start World War III. But he does not want you to know. He wants to hide all this from you. That is why Satan attacks my ministry. He does not attack the false prophets. Why not? Because they are not warning you about World War III. None of the false prophets on YouTube. They don't know, for example, that the three beasts have already come up out of the sea in Daniel. And oh, what complete ignorance. I mean, how could they miss that? that? We now are only awaiting the fourth beast. And that fourth beast is the one world communist tyranny. The same as the eighth beast in Revelation. Just as a demonstration of how Satan is attacking my videos... I did a uh, search on YouTube under my name. Here comes the proof that he's a true prophet. 
And it's amazing that practically all of the videos which come up are attack videos. Hardly any of the videos under my name have been posted by me. You know what? Using this logic, I have to conclude that I must be a true teacher because, I mean, I, you should see the hate mail I get in the blog sites and things that go up attacking me. <laughs> it must prove that I'm doing God's work. But then again, it might actually prove that I'm just a nut job. Yeah, see, this doesn't really prove anything. Let's take a look at some of those videos. The first video which comes up when you type in my name on YouTube is William Tapley has eight months left, which is an attack video by Atheist Aussie. The next one is William Tapley is Insane by Fantasy Coach. Then we have one by Super Silent, another one by Firstikin, a second one by Atheist Aussie, a second one that says William Tapley is Insane, and finally, the seventh video are some videos of mine but they were not posted by me. They were. You know, I, come to think of it, I remember seeing Rick Warren tweeting just a few days ago. One of he, he sent out a Twitter to uh, to one pastor and said, "The fact that people are attacking you proves that God's about ready to bless you." Well, you know, it, it, that's I'm right, a tweet right from America's pastor. You must be right, William Tapley. You've got to be telling us the truth because you're being attacked. That proves it. Posted by Go Yoshi Go. Now let's look at the second group of seven videos. Here we have a playlist of devil's picks. Those are hate videos. The next one is another attack video. Then we have another attack video by Atheist Aussie. Finally, we have the first video under my name, which I actually made and which I actually posted, which is my poem. Even then, this is not a video, a typical video. In other words, it does not tell about World War III. Then we have another hate video, William Tapley's satanic response. Then we have another uh, opposition video. Now, this is by Bible Belt Christians, so he would not be an atheist or a Satanist. And finally, we have my second video, which I posted, called Doom and Gloom, Third Eagle's Tomb. So of the first four... Ah, such a memorable tune, too. 14 videos listed under my name on YouTube, only two were actually posted by me. Now let's look at the next seven. If you use condoms, you will not be raptured. Now this is one of my videos. Now we come to the third video posted by... What was the name of that again? What? <laughs> oh, man. So that was... that. Yeah, the name of that... Um... <laughs> Folks, yeah, this is just terrible news. Um... Yeah, if you've used a condom, you won't be raptured. Just, you know, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse says so. <sighs> Atheist Aussie, another attack video. Then we have one by Icky the Ripper, another attack video. Then we have one by, I think he pronounces his name, Rosebush, another attack video. Then we have the third demon of the apostasy by Super Silent. Another attack video by Rosebush. And another attack video by Demon Naziocracy. Now, this is really amazing. Of the first 21 videos posted under my name on YouTube, all but five of them are attack videos against my ministry. Now, that was just the first 21 videos under my name. The same pattern exists for the next 20, 30, and 40, and 50 videos. Practically all of them are attack videos. But what is really amazing is you do not find this if you type in the names of any of the false prophets. For example, I challenge you. Type in uh, Chuck Missler or John Hagee 
Perry Stone or maybe uh, Dave Hunt or how about Irving Baxter or Hal Lindsey or Jack Van Empey. None of them have attacked videos posted under their names. Can you believe? I mean, that just proves it right there. Ugh. How exactly? <laughs> Why not? Very simply, because Satan does not bother prophets who are false, who are not warning you about World War III. They are doing... Uh, maybe it's just that you, you really do seem like you are one taco short of a combo plate there, um, William. Doing exactly what he wants. They are keeping you in the dark. They are not telling you that the three beasts have already come up out of the sea in Daniel. They do not have a clue that Barack Obama is the leopard, as found in Daniel number 7. And I don't mean to single out just the Protestant false prophets. After all, the Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, has actually met with the three beasts in Daniel. He has met Queen Elizabeth, who is the lioness. He has met Dmitry Medvedev, who is the bear. And he has met with Barack Obama, who is the leopard. Is he aware that these three beasts are found in the book of Daniel? Maybe he does. Maybe that's why he is meeting with them. Maybe he is warning them. Maybe he is telling them that World War III is imminent. I do not know. I am not privy to his conversations with these three beasts. Finally, I want to give you the proof that I promised earlier that I am a true prophet. And I just gave you the proof. The proof is that you can tell a man by his enemies. Satan only attacks true prophets. He does not attack any of the people I just mentioned. He only attacks the third eagle. That's because I am telling you the truth about World War III and that World War III is imminent. The tribulation is upon us. It will begin this week. And one final note. I know I use terms like Protestant and Catholic. But in the end times, there will only be two groups. Those who take the mark and those who refuse. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so there you have it. You know, um, uh, the uh, tribulation starts tomorrow. Put it on your calendar. You know, you, you might want to stock up on sardines and spam. You know, you know, would do it, you know, because you know, Satan's attacking the third eagle. And not the other false prophets. That's, yeah. And it doesn't prove anything. I mean, I have my detractors. I have people who who are very vocal critics of me, but that doesn't prove that what I'm saying is true. Uh, you have to compare what I say in the name of God to the word of God. That's the only way of knowing whether or not what I'm telling you is the truth. Well, we're going to find out, you know, if uh, the third eagle is really a true prophet because, well... If the tribulation doesn't start tomorrow, well, then it, that spells doom for him in a gloomy way. Yeah, that plan words was on purpose. It wasn't that clever. <laughs> All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Fighting for the faith. Sermon review time. As we travel to New York City, Revolution Church, Jay Baker's church there in uh, New York City. I think they meet in a bar. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I, you know, it's a fine place to preach the gospel if you were, well, <clears throat> preaching the gospel. <clears throat> well, let's uh, cue up the sermon review music here. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. As previously stated, our sermon comes to us via the Revolution Church in New York City. That's the home of Jay Baker, but he's not preaching. Emergent philosopher Peter Rollins be doing the preaching. This is from this past Sunday. Uh, The name of the sermon... <clears throat> Why the new atheists don't go far enough? <laughs> ah, yes. <Yeah. laughs> now, <laughs> you you, know, you just got to hear this. I mean, I'm beginning to think that the emergent thing is going to completely collapse on itself. 
I, I don't understand what, if anything, in this sermon is um, Christian. You're going to hear some deconstructionist philosophy, some uh, ideas regarding language. Um, but the thing that forms the basis, you know, the, the launching off point for his teaching, it, it ain't a biblical passage. In fact, I, I'm not even sure if Peter Rollins actually handles a single passage of Scripture. Which kind of reminds me of that text, the Apostle Paul writing in Colossians chapter 2, when he says to the Colossian church, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, which are according to human traditions and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Yeah, I'm just thinking out loud here, that may be the appropriate passage to remember as we launch into this sermon, emergent sermon, on uh, how the new atheists don't go far enough. Here is Peter Rollins. It's really cool to be here because whenever I first met Vince, uh, he told me about Jay and he said, you know, Jay's a bit uh, concerned about your theology, thinks you're a bit dodgy. And now I get to speak and they're not even here to check what I have to say. So I feel privileged. So Jay and Vince are not minding the store and they've left Peter Rollins in charge of the church. Um, What I wanted to explore today... um, it's kind of under the banner of why new atheism does not go far enough. And if you're aware of my work, uh, this will make more sense, hopefully, than if you're not aware. But if you're not aware of my work, it still might make a little bit of sense. Uh, otherwise, just get a drink and have a doze for an hour. It's a nice place to doze. Um, so why the new atheists don't go far enough? Um, I guess I want to start with a little anecdote, and everybody will know this. Uh, it's about a, an Anglican minister who's walking along uh, this cliff uh, side on a, just a nice walk, but he loses his footing and he trips, and he kind of stumbles over the cliff, and he reaches out his hand, grabs a rock, and he's hanging there, and he's hanging there for ages, and he shouts out, Is there anyone there? Is there anyone there? Nothing. Shouts out again, Is there anyone there? And then all of a sudden, the clouds part, and he hears this big, booming voice from heaven saying, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I have watched all these years as you've looked after your parishioners, as you have prayed and you have wept with others, as you have served the church and the community. I am here now for you. Close your eyes, let go of the rock, and I will catch you. And of course, as everybody knows, the minister looks around and says, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) Anybody else, right? No. Just want to let you all know, um, that story, that little anecdote that he told there, yeah, it's not in the Bible. Just, you know, yeah, you won't find it. It's not, not there. I'm going to spend the whole 45 minutes exploring what that means. Because that little anecdote... (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, this is what happens. I mean, you chuck the the Bible, chuck God's Word. It loses all of its authority. It has, you know, 
apparently nothing really meaningful to say for you because after all it's just a photo album of uh, you know of people's experiences of of God in the past and you know God's speaking today and you don't really need the bible so he tells an anecdote and now he's going to spend the rest of his sermon time unpacking the anecdote yeah um has a lot of depth and um, and by the way I'm in favor of the minister uh the the first thing I want to say is this. Language is an interesting thing. It, there are two parts of communication. There is the manifest discourse, the things that you say, and there's the implicit message. The- okay, so language is really interesting. What you're hearing here is post-modernity here. Uh, you know, this, these are, this is post-modern language theory. And so we've got, uh, we've got the manifest discourse and, uh, and the explicit. Hang on a second here. I've got to take notes. Explicit and manifest. Okay, now I'll show you how to defeat this in a second. But hang on a second. Let, let's let's hear him flesh this out. Bleak, true message. Okay, so language has this. It's like a Trojan horse. You've got the outside, the manifest language, and then you've got the implicit meta language. So, for example, in Northern Ireland, especially uh, among a certain generation, there's a thing where you always say no to food the first two times it's offered, right? So if someone says, would you like some food, you always say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm not hungry. And they, oh, no, please, come on, I insist. No, 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 oh, go on, go on, you will, you will, you will. You go, oh, yeah, okay, I'll have a cup of tea and a biscuit, right? So that's the kind of this, this uh, language that happens in Northern Ireland. So when, you, when I came to America... And uh, I first travelled here, and I got out of the plane, and I went to someone's house, and they said, uh, "Would you like something to eat?" And of course, I said, "No, no, I'm okay, I'm, I'm fine." And then they went, "Oh, if, okay," <laughs> and I'm like, "Are you stupid? <laughs> Are Americans thick? Are, do you not know that I want food by the fact that I said no to your food? You know, do you not know that if you want to know if someone's hungry, you ask three times? Right? So it's, a, and you don't even realise it. You don't realise it until you encounter a different culture." That, that actually they don't understand the opaque, uh, coded message behind the, 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 the other message. So, for example, someone says to you, oh, you're looking very healthy, right? Which Jay says to me sometimes to throw me off guard. And what does that mean? Well, it means you're fat. Oh, you're looking very fat. But you say, oh, you're looking very healthy. You're radiant. Okay? Um, now, if you actually said you're looking fat, someone would say, if you thought I looked fat, why did you not just say I was looking healthy? In other words, to say that you look fat is to say more than you look fat. It's to say, it's to give them an insult. But to say, oh, you're looking healthy is to say you look fat in a way that they understand, but you don't say it directly. Or if you take Facebook, everybody knows that you're not supposed to really say what you're doing. You know, the status updates, you know, Peter Rollins is, right, you know, Peter Rollins is thinking about the meaning of life while helping the children in Haiti. Uh, when really, you know, Peter Rollins is surfing the internet for pornography or whatever, you know. Um, it's like, you don't say what you're really doing, you know. You, you, you make it up. Um, and, uh, and, and this, this happens all the time. I mean, families are, are brilliant at this, uh, where you can have a whole... Uh, conversation with your mum. My mum's been over with me for the last two weeks. You know, we can have a whole conversation, uh, which on one surface level seems to say one thing, but underneath it, it's just insult after insult, you know? (laughs) And if you look at it from the outside, it looks like a normal conversation, but there's the implicit metal language. And often women are are, are very good at at picking, the women I know, some of them are very good at at knowing the metal language. So if I go out with some of my female friends and 
I come back and, you know, the girl says, well, oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're about to split up, um, you know, with her, she's about to split up with her boyfriend and, you know, she has a health scare and, uh, you know, she's not getting on with her parents. And I'm like, how do you know? We just talked about the holiday you had last summer. You know, well, did you not see the way she lifted her coffee cup? Right? You know, it's like this, this implicit kind of discourse that's, that's an operation. And um, uh, an example of this, I, I don't know where this is from. But uh, it was in some play, I think, where the, a man said to this woman, uh, they were both actors, and they're actresses, and, and they were going for this, they were going to be in this play. And he said, you know, my name was the big name at the top of the bill, and I thought that was inappropriate. So I took my name off the top, and I put your name at the top, and I put my name underneath yours. And she said, oh, that's great. Thanks very much. You didn't need to do that. And he went, well, yeah, I thought you would say that. So I actually put my name back on the top again. Okay? Now, in other words, that's not what she meant. You didn't have to do that. that that's the... That's the explicit. You didn't have to do that. The implicit is, of course, you had to do that, and I'm glad you did. But whenever you kind of ignore the implicit message and just uh, obey the explicit message, you can kind of get into these weird games and these weird kind of things. So language has a structure and a metastructure, a language, explicit communication, and what is, is happening beneath that. Okay, so okay, let's just apply this then to what he's saying here. Okay, so I mean, on the surface, he's telling us about these categories of explicit and implicit, and uh, manifest versus oblique, and uh, and so you know, you know, I don't want to be stupid and and just take him, take what he's saying explicitly as what he's really trying to communicate. Therefore, I, I'm starting to work on an interpretation of implicitly what he's saying here. So even though he's talking about these theories of language, what he's implicitly saying is is that um, that he thinks fundamentalist Christians have got it right that uh, that uh, that if you don't repent of your of your sins and uh, trespasses and are forgiven by Jesus Christ, that you're going to burn in hell. That's I think that's the thing underneath what he's saying because I I don't want to you know. The last thing I want to be accused of is being naive and 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 not understanding the subtleties of language here. And so, um, you know, explicitly he's talking about one thing, but I think implicitly there's a whole substream that you have to tap into. That's a little bit di- more difficult to do, but I, I'm pretty sure that's what he's saying uh, in this uh, this substream of language, the implicit that that's not really as easily seen. Um, and you see this, even take, take a, a fundamentalist church, where there's this belief that, uh, you know, if you pray enough and if you have enough faith, you will be healed. So if you have enough faith, you will be healed. Now, the implicit message, of course, is, no, of course you don't believe it. It's ridiculous, right? You know, so the person says it. But nobody believes it. What the coded message is, is, you know, pray, you know, if it's not serious. If it's serious, go to see a doctor. Right, that's, that's the coded message. The explicit message is, if you know faith, you're going to get healed. The coded message is, don't be ridiculous, go and see a doctor. Um, and, and, and the only way this is exposed, the primary way this is exposed, is when somebody actually takes the explicit message seriously. And you see this sometimes in the news where parents withhold medical care for, for, for their kid, um, and the kid dies. And it's really difficult because they're like, well, you know, we just did what the church said. And, and, and that's, a, that's a psychotic relationship to language. 
A psychotic doesn't, uh, ex- doesn't experience the gap that we all know. So when you go into a shop and someone says, how are you? You all know that they don't really want to hear your life story, right? And it's obvious. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, I don't want to be accused of being, you know, having a psychotic relationship to language. So even though he's taking swipes at fundamentalist, I, I'm pretty sure that underneath this, what he's really saying is, is that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, uh, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through Jesus, and um, and that the Apostle Paul that he learned all of his theology directly from Jesus. And you need to listen to his uh, what he teaches, especially in the Book of Romans and Galatians, uh, about the law, gospel, distinctive. That's what I'm getting, you know, from uh, because you know I understand on one level um, Peter Rollins here is using. Language, but I don't, you know, I don't want to have a psychotic relationship with language here. And so, you know, and then, you know, get caught up in the explicit thing that he's saying. And so I found that implicitly what he's really saying is something a little bit really more Christian than even what he's letting on. Still, all of us, we, we know what it is. But a, a psychotic gesture is where you actually don't hear the meta language. You just go, how are you? And then they'll just start telling you all about their lives. Um, or uh, in Facebook, you see it, the, the times when people actually do tell you what they're really doing. You're like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is a little bit embarrassing. You know, you don't actually say what you're doing. You know, you're, you're missing the point. You're, you're only seeing the discourse. And um, within, within a kind of fundamentalism, 20th century, late 20th century fundamentalism, there is a desire to and an attempt to reduce language to its explicit content, which is kind of impossible. It doesn't, doesn't quite work. Uh, uh, transubstantiation in Catholicism is the same. You know, most Catholics believe in transubstantiation in terms of the bread and whatever turning into the body and blood of Christ. But, but like, if you ask them if you know to do scientific experiments on it, they go, like, that's ridiculous. No, we don't believe it. We believe it, but you don't. And this is the structure. If, you know, if a man goes to a prostitute and has to believe that she's enjoying it in order to be able to get off, um, he knows that she's not really, that he, she's just getting paid for it. But he's able to suspend disbelief and act, uh, you know, believe what he doesn't believe which some people say is- okay yeah I, I you know you don't get caught up in the explicit language that he's using here folks you got you gotta tap into the this implicit stream the the meta language so what he just said in the meta language is that uh whoremongering and prostitution is a sin i know you didn't hear it uh in the explicit language but that was what was going on in the implicit meta language yeah it's a unique function of human beings that we are the only animal who can simultaneously hold two contradictory ideas. Suspension of disbelief, um, which we won't get into now. Um, so, oh yeah, so um, keep that in mind. And we're going to then, I want to ask another question. So what is religion? What is religious belief? Now, I, I, I want to argue that religious belief is not what you explicitly say. What, you, what your manifest beliefs are, it's the opaque, coded beliefs that lie behind it. That's where religion exists. So, for example, someone could believe in God and believe that the world was created by God and is your first cause and not, not be religious. And I'll explain what I mean in a second. And vice versa, somebody could say, I don't believe in God at all. I don't believe in any of that rubbish. And yet be deeply religious. 
Um, I'll use an example. Somebody could say, um, I believe in God because I've studied philosophy and I've, I've looked at the five ways of Aquinas and I've, I've, just, I've just philosophically convinced that God exists. Now, what actually you find is quite a lot of people who say that. The coded message is, well, I grew up believing in God. I'm really scared that life is meaningless. I'm going to die and everything I do has no purpose or meaning whatsoever. So I went and studied philosophy to find reasons to justify my beliefs. And then I pretended to myself that I believed because of the evidence. Right? That's the coded language. Um, and, and, and we all do it. For example, we, all read, we often read books that just justify the position we already agree with. Um, that's why Lacan said we want a leader we can dominate. In other words, we want a leader who tells us what we want to hear. We read newspapers that agree with our position already. We read books that agree with our position already. Yeah, what's wrong with me? I... <laughs> I listen constantly listen to people I disagree with and <laughs> am constantly reading books from people I disagree with. I, I Something's got to be wrong with me here. We study courses which will just solidify what we already believe um, because then that helps to solidify our identity. Of course, it's very, very easy to do. We want a leader we can dominate. Um, and, uh, yeah, so what am I saying? Oh, yeah, religion. Ah, yes. So, um, no, so somebody says, I believe in God because of the evidence. But then you, you kind of scratch beneath the surface and it becomes quite evident, especially, and by the way, this is where resistance comes in, that you realize that as soon as they get anybody who attacks their belief, they get really, really aggressive. Now, what that belies is that their belief is not is not just some sort of philosophical belief, but is actually something psychologically. They get psychological pleasure from the belief. Because otherwise, why would you get so pissed off that somebody doesn't agree with you? You know. So, it, And if you experience resistance in yourself, you've got to ask yourself, what is that about me? What is that telling me? Because Okay, uh, I just need to remind you all, uh, so far, zero appearances of God's word here in this sermon by Pete Rollins. Apparently, we don't need the Bible. We just need philosophy and uh, postmodern language theory, which, by the way, um, yeah, I'm keeping a running tally here. Um, now, I understand it sounds like he's attacking, you know, fundamentalist religious belief using his explicit language. But when we tap into the implicit meta language, you know, that substream, what he's really saying here, it, it's it's astonishing, I, you know, amazing how this turns out this way. Uh, even though explicitly it sounds like he's attacking, you know, belief in God and things like that, that uh, he, he just, you know, I was decoding his implicit meta language. And here's what he said. Get this. Uh, Peter Rollins in the implicit meta language said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, uh, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of uh, things that are visible. Yeah, it, it's amazing, you know, it's fun, you know, because I've got my postmodern meta language decoder kit here. And, um, and that's, well, that's exactly what he was saying. I just, unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, listen, I, I don't want to be accused of having a psychotic relationship with the explicit language that Pete Rollins is using. I mean, <laughs> The last thing I want to be is psychotic. We are very good at fooling ourselves, and resistance can tell us that actually there's something going on. And by the way, that's why you see a lot of resistance 
with documentaries like um, uh, uh, you know what's that uh, Inconvenient Truth and things like that these documentaries a lot of people who really really don't like them and really react against them it's not because they, they learn something they don't know it's because we know already what they're going to tell us and we do want to know that we know oh, okay oh wow uh, more I, I got this is amazing Okay, on the uh, on the explicit language that Pete Rollins was just using, he was basically making it sound like he agreed with the movie Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. But what he really said, get this, the from the implicit meta language that he was using, he just said that uh, Al Gore is a complete buffoon and that his uh, schlock science about the the world warming up is uh, complete poppycock. That that's amazing. It's wow. I am so glad I learned about not being psychotic to the explicit meaning of what of of words and language because it's opened me up to a whole new level of what Pete Rollins is saying here. Right. What what that means is that in some respects, by the time a big documentary comes onto the surface, we already know what it's going to say. Maybe that our consumption habits are bad. Maybe there's deep cruelty to animals or whatever. We already know that the, you know, the farming industry is deeply cruel. We already know our clothes are being made in other countries. We already know that. We just don't want to know that we know. Because if we don't know that we know, we can pretend that we don't know. But as soon as you're presented with the information, you can't fool yourself. You have to. Re- I, I want to think I'm a nice person, right? But as soon as I know the information and I'm presented with it. I can't fool myself. What's worse, I can't fool other people because they've seen it. I've seen it. So now they know that I'm an asshole, right? Because they know. And, so, and you see that, you know, in Nazi Germany, Second World War, a lot of, a lot of civilians were saying, well, we didn't know what were happening to our Jewish neighbors. We didn't, we didn't know. And of course, they didn't know exactly what was happening. But, but you kind of go, there was enough hints around. So you go, you know, your, your ignorance is, is something, as, it's not just ignorance, it's, it's willful ignorance. And of course it's willful ignorance, because you're afraid. If I know what I know, if I admit to what I know, I'll have to take action, or I'll have to admit that I'm not a nice person. I don't want to, I don't want to take action, and I do want to admit that I'm not a nice person, so I won't let myself know what I know. Yeah, I'm afraid that's probably for a postmodern... Um Experts, yeah, I see. I haven't quite achieved uh, the my decoding stat. I couldn't decode that if I tried. I couldn't even outline it. Sorry, you know, I'm trying to get past his explicit language to get to the implicit meaning of what he just said about knowing what you know when you don't know it. That you do know that you don't know it. Um, but uh, I don't know about what I do know there because I'm not sure if I know that I don't know it. So I'm having a hard time decoding it. Yeah. I don't, I, that was just an aside point. Um, so, uh, yes, oh yeah, oh, but, but sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as Freud said. I mean, because Freud, Freud said, you know, like, uh, you know, Freud once said, uh, cigars are like phallic objects and this oral kind of phallic thing. And then somebody said, Dr. Freud, you know, you smoke a cigar. And he was like, well, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And, uh, and sometimes, so the person who says, I, I believe in God because, you know, I look at the world and I think, wow, there must be a first cause. That then they just believe it. They just happen to believe it, but they don't need to believe it. They're not scared of hearing opposition. They're not scared of hearing other views, and they're not scared of changing their mind. They they believe, but they're not religious. I. They, it's not a crutch that they have to believe. You have to. I have to believe, otherwise I can't cope. I have to believe there's meaning, otherwise, otherwise I'll just fall into despair. Right. So, and, and but the opposite thing, which is really interesting, is somebody who says, "Oh, I'm not religious at all," and yet you find there's a deep psychological need to believe in some sort of transcendent 
thing. This is very common, a lot more common than people think. This, this works like, um, take the example of Santa Claus. Uh, when a child, when you're a child, you believe in Santa Claus and, and Christmas is wonderful and mysterious and it's class, you know. And then you, you realize God, Santa doesn't exist. And, um, and you then, Christmas is demystified. Um, but then if you have kids, uh, you tell them that Santa Claus exists. And what happens? You experience the psychological pleasure of believing in Santa Claus, but without the belief. So you don't believe that Santa Claus exists, but you experience a psychological pleasure. Now, the reason why you know that's the case is, is whenever the kid starts to ask, does Santa exist? It's a deeply traumatic experience for the parents. Not, not, not because they're going to like expose the child, maybe as part of that, but because, oh man, I can't even believe anymore, because they're believing through the child's belief. I believe through the other, I'm believing through the child. So it's, so it's, it's like, a, you, I say, oh, I'm, I don't believe in Santa Claus, that's ridiculous. But psychologically, I get the psychological crutch, crutch. I get the psychological, we sense the pleasure of, of that belief. So I was talking to a friend last night, who, a, a woman, Jill, whose child asked her, does the tooth fairy really exist or is it just, you know, you and dad? And she was like, oh, this is awful. And she went, well, you know, okay, it's just me and dad. And, and she was saying, like, you know, this is, this is a deeply traumatic experience for her. Um, but, of course, the kid was just like... Does that mean I still get my two bucks? You know, it wasn't a traumatic experience to him at all. He was like, "Yeah, I still get my money, don't I?" You know. And in fact, I think the fear of asking was the fear of if I ask, because I kind of already know. But if I know that I know, and if 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 I expose that I know, will will it? You know, well, no, I do not get my two dollars under the under the uh, pillow. Or the sign saying next. Yeah, all of this philosophy, by the way, is leading somewhere. <laughs> But if you listen to the explicit language, then uh, the the point that he's trying to make is ultimately uh, faith equals doubt and uh, and true belief is unbelief. That's where he's going to go with the explicit language. But don't worry, I, I have a postmodern language deconstruction kit because I don't want to uh, I don't want to be accused of having you know this this terrible the psychotic relationship with language. So I'm embracing the implicit uh, meta language that this underneath all this that he's really communicating. Time I'm bringing pliers, which would be very sick today. I wouldn't be right. Um, <clears throat> Um, yeah, a quarter. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so sometimes people say, I don't believe. But what you find is actually they get deep psychological pleasure from their parents believing. Or they, they go to church and they don't really believe. But as long as their children are going to Sunday school and believe, or as long as the, the youth minister that uh, you know you taught them when they were very young believes, they experience a psychological pleasure. They they what's called dis, a disavowed religiosity. They don't, oh, I'm too clever to believe. But actually, I really need it. And, and it's only whenever their parents say, well, we don't believe anymore, they, they experience a trauma. Like, like the child and the parents and the child, or when their children stop believing, or whenever the childhood minister comes out and says, I don't believe. And then they realize, oh, of course, intellectually, I don't believe. But, but the coded message, I, I actually needed the psychological, I needed the belief, because I couldn't face the idea that, that life is meaningless. Um... <laughs> So why am I saying all of this? Who knows? Who knows? I have no idea. Well, if you don't, then... There's no point to this sermon? I'm learning so much about God from it, though. Oh, yeah, I have such a profound and deeper understanding of Scripture now. Not really. Because I don't have anything more interesting to do with my life. It's depressing. 
um, okay, uh, why is that the, my problem with kind of New Year theism is, is because the New Year theists are mostly kind of coming from the scientific discourse, they have a naive view of language. Um, in other words, they, they think religion operates at the level of manifest belief. And so they attack manifest belief. Because scientific discourse, by definition, is a discourse that operates at the level of manifest belief. And because they're not theologians or philosophers, they haven't generally thought about the, the nature of language too much. So um, what they end up doing is they only end up attacking a form of fundamentalist belief, a form of psych- psychotic belief, which is, the you know, um, what I said before, where the... The, the split between the opaque meta language and the uh, explicit language. Uh. Now, no, no, listen. I know that sounded like an insult. You know where he, he said that fundamentalists have psychotic belief. Now, don't get caught up in that. The reason why, because that was just what he said explicitly. What he actually meant to say, and and well, actually, I think that was part of the implicit meta language that's underneath what he just said. What he really just meant to communicate was that fundamentalism is the only healthy way of looking at the Bible. It's strange how that happens, but you know again, don't 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 have a psychotic relationship with the explicit words that he has here. You don't want to get caught up in that explicit language. You got to look for the meaning under the meaning and when you do that it it actually he what sounded like a complete slap against those who actually believe the biblical text literally turns out it was a complete compliment. I mean, who knew? isn't seen or isn't felt. By the way, there are two other ways to believe. One's neurosis and one's perversion. The neurotic is where you experience the gap too much. So, you know, whatever somebody says, the other person says, what did they mean by that? They said they loved me. What did they mean? And, or what, they said this, but what are they doing? In other words, the, the experience, the gap that's implicit within language is experienced in too oppressive a way as a form of neurosis. So there, there are a couple, but I'm just so the psychotic is where it kind of crunches it into one, and the neurotic is where it rolls into two, and the perverse is a, is a different one, uh, which we don't have time to explain. Um, and uh, so what I'm arguing here is that religion, in a sense, operates at the level of disavowed belief. It's, it's the religious gesture is: Do I need to believe in here? Do I need it in order to function? Because I'm scared. I'm scared that life is meaningless. I'm scared that that. This There's existentialism. Means nothing. I'm scared that whenever someone I lose someone, I've just lost them. And I, and whether or not I say I believe, I need to believe. I need to believe. And if anyone attacks it, I'm gonna I'm gonna tear their head off because I need to believe. I need to believe. And I want to say that that's actually something that that needs to be attacked. And if you want to do it. It's cr- now, I understand in the explicit language, he just said that, you know, the the need to believe is something that needs to be attacked. But funny enough, um, using my postmodern language deconstruction uh, detective kit, I was able to find out that what he really meant is that the need to believe in God is actually the healthiest form of mental healthness. Weird. I just... Huh, these are, it's amazing. I mean, I love this post-modernity thing because it allows me to kind of just, you know, not get hung up on the explicit language and look for the deeper meaning. Those deeper meanings sure are fun, aren't they? It's the reality that does it best. That, in, that there is a fundamental atheism in Christianity that is, we could call it existential atheism, that is central to the experience of the cross. So, okay, so explicitly he's saying that there's a fundamental atheism in Christianity. Yeah. Um, What he said on, though, the implicit opaque level, the meta-language, he just said that uh, atheism and Christianity are not compatible. Weird how that works. 
the Lord understand this, we've got to look at this cry that Jesus says, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the first thing you have to note is it's not an intellectual disbelief. The prayer is addressed to God. So there's not, it's, not, it's not an intellectual lack of belief. You know, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, just looking at the explicit language here, you know, not the implicit. Um, it wouldn't make sense to say that he was being atheistic at the time. Maybe he was instead describing, you know, kind of the nature of God's punishment is that separation from the Father. You know, just, you know, post, you know I'm just saying here, but... I mean, I I don't see any case there when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't sound like something an atheist would say. I mean, seriously, I mean, can, can you imagine, you know, what those new atheist guys, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> it's terrible. Where are you, God? Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't seem to fit, does it? It is the experience of that belief having no operative power of, of that belief being forsaken you of suddenly that, that all of the operative power and security and pleasure and everything that, that binds you to that belief is gone and christ experiences this you can call it existential atheism and atheism in your physicality so still believes in god but experiences the absence of god exactly what mother Teresa experienced uh, whenever she had what she called the call within the call, when she went to work with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, and the day she got the call was the day she experienced the absence of God. She continued to believe in God and talk about God all the time, yet for the rest of her adult life she experienced this profound absence of God. And and, and by the way, this view is pretty much against the entire contemporary church. <laughs> you know, um, this is the entire edifice of actually existing Christianity. Um, we, this, this view is anathema. Um, I should put that as an aside. Uh, you know, what's weird, though, is, is, okay, in the explicit language that he was using, he made it sound like uh, that it was wrong for the current edifice of Christianity to call that anathema. Funny enough, though, on the implicit sub meta-language level, uh, what he just said is, is that the, uh, the, those in the church who say that's anathema, that they're absolutely right. Weird. I mean, again, I am so glad I learned how to play with language in a postmodern way. It's so much fun. So I've got my work cut out for me. Um, uh, so if you participate in the experience of the cross, what I want to say to you is that you experience that same thing. In the same way that Christ was brought out of the political and the social and the religious context, you know, political, religious and social, all all let let go of him. And in the same way that he is experiences the absence of the divine, not there is an uh, there is a a lack of experience of God, but the absence is experienced. So, for example, if you, if, if I'm waiting for someone I really like or I love to come to this, they're not here. But I experience their absence. Nobody else experiences their absence because you don't know them, right? So they're just, it's an absence of experience. But for me, it's an experience of absence. Because so to their lack, it's almost like there's this, this shape of them in this room. And their absence is louder than their presence. Because I'm waiting. And where are they? Where are they? So you, you, there's an absence of experience for you, but I experience the absence and experience of absence. So that's the, that's the Christological moment. You experience the breaking of the idea 
that um, of the divine. And it's very, very scary. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. You're loosed from this psychological need. You're forsaken. You're left alone, all alone. The anxiety that maybe all your life is absolutely pointless. Maybe this is it. Maybe you have to make the best of it. Maybe. And you, you just experience what that's like. You don't talk about it. You experience it. Whether or not you believe it, you experience it. That's this experience of Christ on the cross, the forsakenness. But it doesn't end there. Then resurrection. What, can, what is resurrection? Well, you can say that in resurrection, remember the guy, remember the minister, I hope you're still remembering the minister hanging to the uh, cliff face saying, is there anybody else up there? Right? So he believes in God, but what he's looking for is a human being. You know, okay, that's very good, but is there anybody else out there? Well, what I'd like to argue is that Christianity is where we are loosed from the need to believe in some God who guarantees that life is meaningful so you can sleep well at night, so that you can, oh, you know, I know it's all going to be okay when I die and everything's going to be great. And it doesn't really change who you are. It's just a belief that makes you, makes you just uh, function, you know. And you are bound to the other. That I- uh, what? He's losing me here. I am having a hard time with both the explicit and the uh, implicit. I, wow, yeah, I, hmm. I'm having a tough time tracking here. I need to work on my decoding skills. Actually, God is now in the depth of being itself, in the face of the other. Did you find God in nothing other than giving water to those who are thirsty, giving food to those who are hungry, to giving clothes to those who are naked? Oh, this is just traditional liberal theology. Oh, finding God in the other, you know, going and make the world a better place. I doubt he um, embraces the biblical gospel of Christ died on the cross for our sins, was raised again on the third day for our justification. Yeah, he probably uses this explicit, implicit thing to kind of get around the explicit language so that he's not psychotic and can embrace the implicit message, which is basically whatever he wants it to be. Anything but what the explicit language says. Right. Visiting those who are in prison, standing up for injustice, giving yourself utterly to love. You know, living by that sword and dying by that sword. Because we all know if you live by the sword of love, you you die by the sword of love. Boy, what a fun little platitude that was. Um, so uh, religion is giving yourself to love. Oh, I could just imagine that on a Hallmark greeting card. Um, but it's not in the Bible. Hmm. Um, and... And so we are now bound to one of that. That's why Bonhoeffer said the transcendence of God has nothing to do with God being bigger and above us. We miss the point if we think that's what the transcendence of God is. The transcendence of God is God in the midst. God, this mystery that is among us, this mystery that dwells with us, this mystery that we participate in, and that we participate in in our direct material bodily involvement with one another. So what does all that mean? Well, it means a very... <laughs> That's a great question. I hope you can answer it. ...are an almost counterintuitive idea that the community of believers is not the place where you go because you've, you're hardwired to the truth, you know, because you don't have to put your trousers on one leg at a time like everybody else, that you've got the hot wire to the divine. The community of believers is the place where you go because you don't know. 
It's the experience of the not an oasis in the desert, but a desert in the oasis. So the community of believers is a place where you go because you don't know. So the, a Christian church is a community of doubt, not faith. <clears throat> I guess apparently in his world, agnostics are the true Christians. Everyone believes. To believe is so easy. So easy. To believe in our political upbringing, our social upbringing, our religious upbringing. You know, I wonder if he believes what he's saying is true. It's so easy to believe, you know. Believe is so, so easy. To doubt is so, so hard. Uh, And I don't mean doubt as an intellectual doubt. It's not not what it's about all. And people kind of, you know, have have always misheard me in this. And I I probably haven't been sufficiently clear in the past. I'm not talking about intellectual doubt here. I'm about experiencing absence. That Christ on the cross experience. And of going, I have to take full responsibility for myself. Yeah, that's not the gospel. I have to take full responsibility for myself. Yeah, that means I go to hell. Because if, well, I, I can't seem to make up for the full things that I've done if I take risk. Uh. I need to take full responsibility for those people who are around me. I need to live in the midst of uncertainty and unknowing. I have to embrace that. I have to be able to say yes to life in the midst of all these things that would say no, that would want me. So we need to embrace uncertainty and knowing. Yeah, I wonder if that's why the early Christians were called believers. Yeah, or when you know Jesus says, "He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he." I mean, if we were going to read this, through, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you know, I'm I understand I'm not dealing with the implicit level. I'm just dealing with what he's saying explicitly. Um, but um, if we were to talk, you know, take a look at what Jesus said. You know, um, you know, Jesus said. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. I mean, if we were to kind of rerun this through um, <clears throat> Peter Rollins's philosophy, we must come to the conclusion that Jesus, really what he was saying is that everyone who doubts in me um, has life. That It's not about belief. It's about doubt. Christianity is not about faith. It's about doubt. You know, we can all gather together and celebrate our doubt and our unbelief. Yeah, that because that's what Christians, that's what Jesus really meant. You just got to not have a psychotic relationship with his explicit language, apparently. Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. To say no. Um, and in sharing my life with others, there I find God. And that's why Bonhoeffer said to live as though God is not given is to live fully before God and with God. In other words, to experience that detachment from God is a nice idea that guarantees your life is meaningful. I, I do want to point out the fact that Bonhoeffer, <clears throat> none of his writings actually have made it into the canon of Scripture. Just want to remind you of that. To God is this manifest presence in the depth of the world itself manifest only in our material engagement so so christianity is a materialistic religion not a, not an abstract religion i it transforms your material existence or it's just a lie it's just a lie don't care what it is if it doesn't transform a material existence it's just a lie um 
And the church then is the very place you go to experience that. So instead of the church being the place where you sing songs about God is there, Jesus is my boyfriend, God wants to have a parking space for me, all of that stuff, right? The church is the place where you go to say, I don't know if I believe. Um, God, I don't need you. God, I'm angry. (laughs) So I go to church to tell God, God, I'm in church just to let you know I don't need you. Turn that one into a praise song. I just and all the other experiences and the joys and all, but it, but the experience, the prayers which which say, God, I don't know if you're listening, um, and I don't care. What I want to do is I want to think about that person who's suffering. I want to reflect on that. I want to pray about it. I want to act on it. And the community becomes this broken, fragmented place. And just like Alcoholics Anonymous is the place where you go because you've got a dependency on alcohol, the community of believers should be the place you go because you've got a dependency on religion. I can't function without the belief that there's some superior power because, because... if, if, I, if I don't believe that, I realize that maybe my life is meaningless, maybe I'm going to die, and that's it. I, I experience guilt and all of these things, and I can't cope. So I, I listen to music all the time, even when I'm sleeping, I keep the radio on. Um, I, I go out and socialize all the time because I can't stay still and silent for half an hour without the demons coming back to me. Because you know what? There are not 40 people here today. There are hundreds of people here. We're all carrying so many ghosts. And... and and it's so hard for us to stay silent because then we see those ghosts. And those ghosts are not there because they can't get to the other side. They're there because we can't let them go. And, and What is he talking about? So we're all carrying ghosts, not because the ghosts can't get to the other side, but because we won't let them or something like Huh? And so this for me is the good news of Christianity. It's not that we repress our anxieties and we believe in God so that we don't have to face up to our pains and our sufferings. But it's that we're a community of people who live in uncertainty and unknowing. So the good news is not what Scripture says. Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Um, But that, um, that we're a community embracing doubt. Yeah, y'all get the feeling that this just, this kind of theology just has no staying power. I mean, I funny enough, in preparation for my debate against Doug Paget, I was reading about the debate that J.J. Uh, Altizer in the 1960s had with uh, John Warwick Montgomery, and uh, and uh, you know J.J. Altizer put together a very exotic theology, the God is dead theology, and. Um, and uh well montgomery uh, decimated his uh, theology um really just kind of obliterated it was kind of like a nuclear weapon versus a bb gun anyway um and uh, what what's interesting to note is i think that was in 1966 1967 somewhere in there and uh, everyone pretty much agrees now that um that even though there were some pretty major people who at the time were flirting with that theology, that shortly after that debate, the uh, God is dead theology experienced the ash can of history and fell into disuse. Um, I just don't see this theology taking off. No, no. I mean, what are you at church here? Well, we're a community of doubters. Right. 
right. Okay, so what uh, uh, What do you doubt? Well, we doubt God's existence. Okay. So how do you express that doubt? Well, by helping the poor and being broken together with them so that we can restore things. Um, Right. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so you're here to... Yeah, we're here to just tell God that we don't need him. Okay. Yeah. Um. Not only is this counterintuitive, it just seems silly. We talk about our suffering and our pain. We mourn. Uh, we listen to one another. And we find faith and God and the ability to say yes to life in the midst. That's eternal life. In, in Christianity... In the Bible, uh, death is not something that, that happens in the future. Death is a mode of living. No, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And Paul... Yeah, that's because we're dead in trespasses and sins, right? Talks a lot about the dead. It's a mode of living, living in a, in, in a way that it is death. And eternal life is about a, a mode of being that starts here and now. Now, funny enough... Using, you know, looking at his explicit language here, uh, what he's saying is that is actually true. When you understand that there are certain passages that describe death and in life in this manner, okay, um, yeah, it, it, what he's saying is there's some actual truth to this. Now, whatever happens afterwards and whether that continues, it's something that is here and now, a mode of living and saying yes to life and affirming life here, right here. Uh, bad conclusion. I think it would be great to, if anybody had any questions or thoughts. If we just have a couple of minutes, anybody want to? How do you answer questions? I mean, do you just go with the, what they explicitly say, or do you try to get to the implicit part of it? I put up there, you know, say something or reflect on what I've what I've been talking about. Because because at the end, which is kind of coming up, I I want to. Ask whether revolution is reflects that or wants to reflect that in some way. It's a rhetorical question. It's something that you guys have to go away and, and think about. But whether revolution is a place which, in a sense, critiques religion, um, allows a space for doubt and uncertainty, experiences total responsibility and finds God in the midst and not as a, what Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina, the, this thing that you wheel into existence to make you feel good. Um, so anybody want to ask a question or reflect? No. You talked about the psychotic and the... What were oh, yes, psychotic, neurotic and perverse. Is there room for healthy... Uh, you know, mode of belief. I, yeah. Well, you know, funnily enough, it's, you'd say that the neurotic is actually the, the 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 healthiest. I mean, it depends on you know your kind of views on this stuff. But in one sense, you can say that you always fall into. Kind of I told you. I <laughs> oh, did I nail this one? Remember when he was going through that neurotic and all that kind of, I, that I said that what he was implicitly he had to look past the explicit language that what he was really saying was that the neurotic was the uh, the healthiest thing. He, that's what he just said. <laughs> I am getting so good at this postmodern thing. Oh, I I've got to pat myself on the back. Some I know some of you are thinking, Roseboro, your ego's big enough. I know, I know. I, I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. I repent. I repent. Anyway, just got to pass up just a smidge. Healthiest? I mean, it depends on, 
you know, your kind of views on this stuff. But in one sense, you can say that you always fall into kind of one of three of those to a certain extent. And the neurotic, the neurotic approach is actually, um, as long as it's not severe, is actually probably the, the healthiest, where you both fully believe but experience the gap and experience the language. Now, the problem is you can't know, you can't know the... If you, if you know the pseudo, the coded language too well, it really messes things up. It really does. I mean, you start, if you do this too much, like whenever you go to a restaurant and somebody goes to pay who's got a lot more money than you, and then, you know, you go for your wallet, you may not even have any money in your wallet, you know, but you, you have to then take that risk, okay, and reach for your wallet knowing that the other person is going to say, no, no, let me. And then, of course, you know that you have to, to say once, no, 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 it's fine. You're going, I really, you know, they better play this game because if they say, well, that's okay, then you're stuffed because, you know, you don't have enough money in your pocket, you know, and then they go, no, 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 it's fine. I really want to get this. And you say yes. So that's the coded language. We all know it. But if you know that you know it, it becomes really awkward <laughs> to, to, to get through life, um, you know. But the, the perverse, by the way, I'll talk about, I'll just mention what the perverse discourse is as well. It's where you implicitly critique the manifest language while implicitly affirming it. And, and the best way of saying is, you know, these, you know, where you go to a protest and you protest against environmental crisis and all of that, and then you drive home in your SUV or whatever. You know, it's where you protest against the very act that you are implicitly involved. And you, so you, you attack the very thing. And in your attack, you're affirming it. Actually, here's a better example. In China, if you protest, uh, you're allowed to protest, but you've got to fill in loads of forms and um, you've got to kind of, you know, then protest in this place at, the, at a particular time and you've got to disperse at a particular time. In other words, you're allowed to protest as long as nothing changes, as long as you don't disturb anybody. Now, I have to say in the US it seems similar as well, is that, and, and the UK, is that you're allowed to protest as long as nothing changes. So when Tony Blair said, well, are you not glad that you live in a country where you're able to protest? Well, yeah, we're, we're, we're able to protest as long as nothing changes. You know, that's um, but that makes us feel better. So the protest is built into the very system that undermines. So the, the system can allow for protest, and not only allow for protest, it allows the, the citizens to all feel good about themselves because we've protested while nothing actually changes. That's a, that's a perverse structure. Um, yeah, so those are kind of three... Three kind of things, and, and you can, and then I'm applying it to religious belief. So you see that in religious belief, um, and I say the, the, psycho, the psychotic version is what you see primarily in kind of late twentieth century fundamentalism. But even then, it cannot be fully maintained. It cannot be fully maintained, um, and it, because the person who does maintain it uh, ends up their child dies. You know, and um, I did that. I was psychotic in a sense whenever I, I had psychotic belief uh, when I first entered into the whole Christian community thing and I literally believed what the people said and it was like crazy <laughs> the, the, the predicaments I got into any other thoughts or questions I just I, I was struck because I, I teach fourth grade mm. and the fourth graders are just at the age where they're learning this idea between the, the manifest discourse and the underlying belief and mm. it's so I'm like, I'm really present to it every day in my teaching that the things that I say, they only take exactly the way that I say them. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I'm having to sort of teach them that like, when I say it's going to happen in a minute, it doesn't mean that the next time that the second hand hits wherever I'm at now. And uh, it's, it's like really challenging me as a teach as a person to think about what am I saying and, and to see how like what, 
do I want them, you know? Are you even familiar with colloquialisms? When I say, give me a second, I'm not saying give me a second. Give me just a little bit of time here so that I can, yeah, oh, man. And that doesn't, just because I say give me a second doesn't mean that all language can be interpreted that way. I mean, if this is, if we do this, could you imagine? Seriously. Okay. Uh, a doctor, you know, somebody studying to be a medical doctor, they're at medical school. You know, maybe they're down at, uh, you know, at, uh, at South Carolina school down there in Chapel Hill, and they're studying to become a medical doctor. And they, you know, they, they approach their anatomy text this way. Okay, so it, it, here this text says that the heart is you know, located in the chest cavity right over these particular ribs and at this point. You know, that's what it says explicitly, but, you know, I bet you anything, I bet you anything that if we go through the belly button and turn left that we could probably find the heart. That's what it's probably implicitly saying. Yeah, no, no, I mean, seriously, folks, the, uh, why <laughs> you can't live post-modernity. There's no such thing as a postmodern medical doctor. Yeah, 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 I in fact, if there was a postmodern surgeon out there, I would not go to him if I had a problem. You never know what would go missing. How much do I teach them? What do I not teach them? Yeah, that's a, yeah, Professor. I wonder whether children then. There's something we learn, obviously, in communication. We learn and. Um, it's a fascinating psychological kind of development. I mean, and the, you know what this opens up, by the way? This opens up a communities where, because this is not about, this is kind of, this, and it's actually, I call it atheism, a-stroke theism. So the, the atheism is a theistic atheism. It's a, um, it's a kind of letting go of God in order to find God, uh, a deeper kind of idea of God. <laughs> theistic atheism. Letting go of God to find God. Oh, man. Um, expression of God. But uh, this opens the possibility, one, of that your belief, you don't have, you can hold lightly to it. So you have, you can believe, but, you know, you don't, you, it, if you doubt or you're unsure, you're having a dark night of the soul or whatever, you know, that's fine. Um, the only way we can have dark nights of the soul in the church is when the lights are switched on, i.e., you know, oh, uh, you know, you may doubt God, but God still believes in you, which is not doubt at all. It's pseudo, it's, it's, it's meta-belief, you know. If, if I say, well, I don't know if I believe in God, but I know God believes in me, well, you're not really doubting, you know. Um, you're just uh, going through the motions without like, the actual real doubt. Um, so you can have... You can hold your beliefs lightly without resistance. So there can be agnostics, there can be atheists, and there can be theists all participating fully in the life of the community. And in ICON, the community that I'm part of, that's the reality. Theist so, uh, you know, you know you're, if your Christian community isn't fully embracing agnostics and atheists and, and, you know, considering them full communing members of your congregation, well, you're just doing something wrong. Atheist, uh, uh, agnostic, all involved, and, and often crossing paths and changing their views, but and, and yet fundamentally all affirming God, God as that presence in the midst, that mystery that we participate in materially in our existence, um, because because that that is where faith is, and so religion. Is that, as I say, that psychological need? You just need to believe because, and so then God just becomes a guarantee that life is meaningful. God is simply something you have to believe in because maybe you're scared. And, and of course, what? you know, I, I like it better when people just tell me the Bible stories. You know, um, 
Have we even heard a single passage of scripture during this sermon yet? Why would you not be? Life is terrifying. Life, life is difficult even when it's not. You meet someone you love, the first thing you know is, well, they're going to die, or maybe in a few years' time they're going to stop loving you, or you'll stop loving them. Even beauty is marked by tragedy. Life is difficult. But how do we become a courageous community who don't need to believe, but our beliefs then are, are natural? You know, we, so if we believe in God and say, believe in God, but that's not the point. I don't need to. And, 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 and God is simply what, what I do. I do. So God is what I do. Well, that's probably the most dissatisfying definition of God I have ever heard from a philosopher. Any other comments or thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I have some personal um, concerns that um, I, I think I, I am absolutely in the, in the middle of it. Stout change, which is tremendous for me, having been in this thing since forever. And um, I think what concerns me is that that I really need this stout right now. I really there's something, some freedom in it, like what you're talking about. There's, there's a freedom in the doubt, and just to stop worrying, stop caring, stop fearing, and just let it go and mature from that. But what concerns me is that now I look at uh, the other the other believers, and and it, it becomes an us and them thing for me once again. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot I cannot go back to what I had, and so therefore they don't exist anymore because I need this new, I need this new thing to know that I don't have to know and be, okay, did that make any sense? Yeah, and, 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 you, know, and you know, there's always this bizarre... Um, you know, you know, every every group there's an inside and outside. The, the, the fascinating thing about Christianity, I think, is that the the inside is always the outside. So, in Christianity, you know, the idea is that when Paul talks about it, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you know, you neither rich nor poor. First, I think that's the first time God's word has ever made a, an appearance here at the end of this ser- sermon. Theist nor atheist, uh, you know, neither American nor Iraqi, neither Christian nor non-Christian. For all are made one in Christ. That's my version, right? And and, and why do I say that? Because you know, we think that what it really means is we put on, we take off all those identities, and we put on a super identity, the uber identity of Christ. But what if losing all of our identities, we identify directly with Christ, who lost his identity, who became nothing? You know, he, he this, this what we call kenosis, this, this emptying becoming nothing. So the, the church becomes, maybe it's enough name, but the church becomes the community which says, here in this space, we experience the loss of all identity. We experience the sense of um, that we are responsible, that there is no plan B, that we are the people we are waiting for, that we are the, the body of God in the world. Um, and so although there's an us name, it's a very different kind of us name. It's inviting anybody who wants to come in, and the only prerequisite is that you're willing to lay stuff down. You're willing to be wrong. You're willing to open up into discourse and engagement. Um, and so that's the kind of evangelism of the community. You know, we're, we're evangelizing people into laying everything down. This is the community of nobody. Okay, so you, your evangelism is telling people to lay everything down. Rather than telling the evangel, evangelical, e- e- evangelion, it means gospel, good news. So the good news, come lay everything down. Rather than the good news, Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures and was raised again on the third day for your justification according to the scriptures. Apparently that's not the good news. The good news now is come lay everything down. These are nothings. 
as Paul would say. Um, so yeah, it's kind of. But, but I hope it's a non-oppressive us and them. If that, I think that's what it means is is that we become we invite people into this space of humility. But it's terrifying for people. It's terrifying for all of us. I mean, none of us really want to doubt. And so what we do, what we do is we say we doubt while not doubting. And that's my, and I've, you've heard me talk about this before, so I won't say too much, but you go into a church and today it's all very cool to talk about doubt and uncertainty and unknowing. And then you go, well, why is it not reflected in the church itself? Why is it not reflected in the music, which is all about certainty? Why is it not reflected in the prayers or in the sermons? Why is it all, we can do it intellectually? Because the church is a security blanket. A child comes into this room, they don't experience the horror of being in a room full of strangers because they've got a security blanket. They know they're in a room full of strangers, they know it, but they don't experience the psychological trauma of it until you take away the security blanket and then they experience the psychological trauma. So we want people to experience psychological trauma in church by taking away the security blanket of songs that talk about God in certain ways and make it sound like uh, belief and trust are good things instead of doubt. Boy, talk about flipping everything upside down. Can you show me where this is taught in the Bible, um, Peter? What we do in church is we say we don't believe, but as long as the structure believes for us, as long as it's a security blanket, we don't experience the trauma of that doubt. What I want to bring people into is the trauma. The last bastion of fundamentalism is not in our beliefs. So, no, we're all too clever to to be fundamental, especially in, you know, uh, Williamsburg and in Brooklyn. Of course, we're too clever for that, you know. We, um, so we're too clever to, to be fundamentalists. So, so we, we outsource our fundamentalism into the structure itself. So it can be fundamentalist so that we don't have to be. We hold absolutely on to our beliefs through. So that's why you, you have the <laughs> <laughs> minister. He comes up and says, I'm not sure if I believe. And the congregation freak out. They all know. They all know that everyone doubts, but the minister is part of the structure, and so they believe in your behalf. As long as the minister believes, we don't have to believe. The- uh, what? When does my minister get to believe for me? That's crazy. I, I, no, Christianity calls individuals to believe, not to have your pastor believe for you. Whew. The minister doubts, and that's why I believe in revolution. One of the first times I came to revolution. Is uh, Vince got up and he said, um, he says, you know, I've sung gospel all my life. I, you know, I says, I've sung too much gospel not to believe. He says, I know I'm going to get my white suit and my good shoes up in heaven. You know, I know it's all going to be. But he suddenly said, but you know, my father's died. And um, in the last few weeks, he says, I actually have lost it. Um, I don't know if I really believe. Um, I I, and I don't even think, you know, I don't really believe, but I really do. I'm really not sure if I do. And I said, so is it okay for you to have a, a, min, a pastor who doesn't know if he believes? And what I loved about the room was it was like, yeah, of course, it's fine, you know. <laughs> no biggie. Uh, and then I remember, remember Jay saying, says, oh, this is really bad because uh, they may have to deal with two because <laughs> I'm in a really bad place at the moment as well. And what I loved about it is I went, this is a community where, where, where people are being... At, have to believe for themselves, take responsibility for their own beliefs, and the people at the front are not believing on their behalf. And I went, right, I want to throw my money into this. I want to throw myself into this uh, community. And I think we need to move forward on that, and we need to get more voices, so it's not just, you know, and we need to do more interesting stuff, and I think we will in 2011. I'm, I'm excited as, as part of this community. But that excited me about revolution, really did. Um, we're kind of coming to the end 
Um, do you want me to say or do anything? Oh, yes. There is a hat when I said about throwing my money in. I meant that. You know, you could pray. That's, you know, guys who deliver sermons after opening the Word of God and teaching us from the oracles of God in the Scriptures. You know, many many times, you know, when they're finished teaching on God's Word, they, you know, pray. Metaphorically, I'm not going to give any money to Revelation, um, uh, but you may want to. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of low on resources, but I think it's got a real message of hope. Um, and this community is a very exciting community for me. So uh, the, the, the message of belief will fill stadiums. People with white suits and promises of perfection will always get a lot of money and they'll get their private jet. We're a long way from the private jet here. Um, because the message of we're broken people and maybe the good news is that we can share our brokenness, that we can find life. Oh, this is so depressing. Uh, yeah, I think you recognizing that you're broken is a good thing. Um, but the solution is not the private jet. It's the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Oh. In the midst of our brokenness, that we can find God in the midst of sharing what little we have with others um, and embracing life in the midst of uncertainty. That's a tougher message, but it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So if you believe... Uh, tougher or not, it's not the biblical one. Even that, um, and you have anything to give. Jay always says we prefer to have you than your money, but I think he's got it wrong. I prefer to have the money and not you. Um, but uh, yeah, if we can have both, that's great. And any other things? Yeah, that's great. Thanks very much. Yeah. There you go. Uh, just a weird walk-on cameo appearance by the Word of God there in that postmodern philosophical <clears throat> lecture. That was not a sermon. Wow, that is just depressing. I mean, I um, if that's the hope that uh, the emergent church has to offer the world, they're not offering the world any hope at all. That's kind of depressed. I'd have to probably be on depression meds if I was attending a church like that. <sighs> no hope. None whatsoever. And no Christ. No forgiveness of sins. Just embraced out and we can all be broken together. Yay. <sighs> at least I recognize they're broken. I mean, there's... Always look at the bright side of life. Da-da. 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 So, uh, what do you think? <laughs> Before I give you my email address, just need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing you train wrecks just like that. Yeah, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. we got two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Pick one. Fill it out. Yeah, we need your support. Whew. Yeah. <clears throat> So, no, seriously, um, what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to contact me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. That's right, all that brokenness. You don't have to revel in it. It's forgiven. Embrace the forgiveness.